people who know me know that I um, collect records. One of my favourite records is this one. Hands up who knows what it is. It is up the back. Album. Thank you. You get a prize. I don't know what. Um, so I, this album um, came to my mind as I was preparing this talk because in a way it um, symbolises what the talk is about. Because what we're going to see is, we're going to focus on aspect of Jesus, Jesus being the light. But you see as it goes through the prism, it breaks up into the various um, colours of the spectrum of light. And we'll see um, as we unpack who Jesus the light is, various aspects of the spectrum of who Jesus is. And that's something um, that, uh, I don't know, for me is really exciting. And we're going to see these three colours or aspects of the spectrum, that he's the light that shines in the darkness of doubt, and we're going to see that he's the light that shines in the darkness of despair, and we're going to see that he's the light that shines in uh, the darkness of death as well. Now, if you've never read the Gospel of John, I recommend you do so. It's a really great book. Um, and but we, if you do, um, it's a bit different to the other Gospels because it's, it's not just a story like the other Gospels are an account of Jesus' life. I mean, John is too, but it's filled with all this important imagery which you need to be aware of. And um, one of the things is that there's 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, but the first chapter has this opening 18 verses, which is known as the prologue. And if you want to understand the whole Gospel of John, I recommend you read that prologue, those first 18 verses, lots and lots and lots of times. Try and understand it. And then as you read the rest of the Gospel of John, if you get confused at any moment, go back to that prologue and read it again. And you'll find all these things, because what, what in the prologue, what it tells you is a, a few key names for Jesus. Um, for example, it ta- describes him as, uh, gives him a title, The Word, you know, which sort of means, to summarise, the perfect wisdom and knowledge of God or the logic of God in a person. Um, it also gives him the title, The Life, He's the one who gives life. He's the resurrection and the life, it says later on in, in the Gospel of John. And also in those first 18 verses, it calls him the light, capital T, capital L. You could think of it that way. Or later on, he's the, it also says he's the true light, the true light, the one who shines in the darkness. And you'll get all these other names when you read the Gospel of John. He is the bread, the bread of life. He's the vine or the true vine. He's the gate. He's uh, the Good Shepherd, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God, the only begotten Son of God, the truth, the way. Uh, but we're going to focus on that aspect of the light, Jesus the light. The other thing the prologue does is it actually tells you pretty much what the plot line is going to be. Um, you know, and we're going to look at a little bit of that today in these few verses. Um, it will tell you, you know, that this, this light comes into the world and then, you know, the world doesn't really know who he is and in fact there's conflict and there's resistance but for some people um, it, he brings um, transformation and um, there's a key verse also in the Gospel of John um, write it down, John 20 verse 31 if you also want to know how to read the Gospel of John because that tells you basically the point of the book which is this these things are written that you may believe that, he is the, that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's what, the why the whole Gospel of John is written. He, the writer, he's written it to persuade you that Jesus is really the Son of God, the Messiah, the, the Saviour of the world. But as I said, the focus of this morning is on the light, 
and what that means for us today. What does it mean in a time of political darkness? What does it mean when we face the reality of human evil? The Burke Street tragedy, the treatment of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people we, last week was, had such a great service lamenting um, you know, the January 26th with our brothers and sisters, Aboriginal brothers and sisters in Australia, um, so powerful. What does it mean with that kind of darkness, the inhumane treatment of asylum seekers? What does it mean for Jesus to be the light? The Gospel of John says that Jesus the light has shone into the darkness and transformed it. And he shines also on you right this second. So how are you going to respond? Well, let's look at the passage, and I'm going to give you a head start. I'm going to start from verse 1. You don't have that in your booklet, and then we'll, get, we'll hit verse 4. Just So it's good to hear the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. It's one of the titles. Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And now we get to the verses that we start in our reading. Verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what does it mean for Jesus, the light, to shine in the darkness? First of all, as I said, the light shines in the darkness of doubt. Some people say you cannot really know God because he's too much of a mystery. He's too complex. He's infinite, we're finite. How can a limited human brain know Jesus? But what I want to tell you this morning is that you can know Jesus. See, when it uses the word darkness here, in a way, a little bit kind of a way, he's shining into the darkness of the lack of knowledge, the mystery, who is God. There's a kind of a darkness. Where there was doubt, he shines and provides enlightenment. Jesus illuminates your mind so that you can know God. Until Jesus came, uh, it was only possible to guess about God. One Greek philosopher said, It is difficult to find out about God, um, and when you have found about him, it is impossible to tell anyone else about him. Uh, To pagan worshippers, God dwelt either in the darkness or in the extreme light of the sun, and so he was unapproachable. But when Jesus came, the people saw exactly what God was like. The darkness turned to light. Uh, A few weeks ago, we had our holiday in Horse Gap. Um, And one of the days, it was, strangely enough, cold and rainy in the middle of summer. Not normally in Horse Gap, usually it's boiling hot. Um, So anyway, we thought, oh, let's go for a drive to Horsham. So Horse Gap's in the Grampians, a mountain range. And so we drove up and over the mountains, and it was a low cloud. And when there's a low cloud on the mountains and it's wet, it feels a bit dangerous when you're driving on the windy roads because, you know, a kangaroo might hop in front of the car or, you know, there might be a a tree that's fallen or or a rock or something. And so, like, I remember driving a little bit more carefully than normal because I was worried about what I might hit. But then after about 20 minutes, the clouds lifted and we could see everything clearly. We could see the trees and the, the mountain range and the view... And it was beautiful and amazing. And this is what has happened when the light has shined in the darkness. Jesus the light, he's lifted the fog on who God is. We're not, no longer grasping. Jesus is God's revelation to us. 
So one of the ways we move from doubt to faith is that God provides for us witnesses to this light. Um, it gives us that, uh, it indicates that already in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, just in case you're wondering. He came only as a witness to the light. In fact, John the Baptist is one of many uh, major witnesses that we get to testify about who Jesus is in, in the Bible. And the language of witness is intentional. It's a bit like a courtroom. Um, uh, there'll be many other witnesses. There's going to be a Samaritan woman who's going to be brought into the court, courtroom to persuade us, who encountered Jesus and her life is transformed when he spoke into it and ran off, tell, uh, ran off telling others in excitement. There, there would be um, Jesus' own miracles. It would be like a kind of a witness to who he is. There would be God, the Father, who would speak from, from heaven and, and uh, people would hear his voice saying, this is my son in whom I am pleased. Um, there would be the Old Testament, the, the Jewish scriptures that actually point to Jesus that uh, act as a witness. And, and, and Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. There would be crowds of people um, who experienced Jesus' ministry. So um, when Je Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the famous um, miracle, crowds ran off and started telling everyone. They acted as witnesses. And there's also the Holy Spirit and the apostles. Um, later on in John 15, Jesus says, When the Advocate, which is another name for the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So witnesses such as John the Baptist are also sent by God to persuade you. So imagine you're the jury, right, and you're in this courtroom, and John, John the Gospel writer is the lawyer, and Jesus is kind of on trial. Is he really the Son of God? Well, all these witnesses are brought in to say, yeah, he really is the Son of God, if you see him, the light, you, you are seeing God, you are, are really being enlightened. Um, the whole purpose of John the Baptist's witness was that through him all people would believe. That's why John the Baptist had his ministry. So if you want to grow and sharpen your knowledge of God, the way to do that is to commit your life as much as possible to growing in your knowledge of the Scriptures um, because the scriptures are where we get all these witnesses from and where we get to meet Jesus and see Jesus and then through that we receive that light. Some people mistakenly think um, that the way uh, to deepen your knowledge and faith in God is to have lots of experiences of God. So, you know, I, I used to do a lot of youth ministry and, and I think a lot of youth ministry is based on that idea that if you provide lots of amazing experiences for, for um, teenagers of, of, of going to church, you know, amazing, amazing kind of band and everyone jumping up and down and getting excited and sweaty, that, that they will go home and say, that was awesome, and that that will actually enlighten them. Um, but, but what I found after years of providing that kind of entertainment was that it actually is a kind of a sugar hit, right? And most of the people that I know who made that their dominant way of um, receiving the light of Jesus um, ended up giving it up because 
when the complexities of life hit, they realised they didn't actually know God. Who is God? I don't, I don't understand him. They didn't have a framework through, through which to communicate with God because really their enlightenment wasn't coming from the light. It was coming from somewhere else. But for those people that I know who from an early age committed to reading and understanding the scriptures, what they were doing was essentially looking closer and closer and closer at Jesus. They were investigating the witnesses. They were being persuaded by the case put to them by the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus' light shone more and more brightly into their hearts and mind and their faith got stronger and stronger. So you might be a person for whom, let's say, last week, Sunday service, um, just was the most amazing thing ever for you, right? And it just blew you away because for you, your heart is about justice and caring for the poor. And that is, that is great. Great, important thing for all Christians to have that passion. But that isn't going to give you, on its own, the enlightenment you need to know God. Not on its own. You can't make that your religion, just the pursuit of engaging with issues of justice, uh, whether it's climate or whether it's refugees, or the poor, or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander injustice. You can't just make that your religion. You have to actually make Jesus the one who enlightens you about God uh, and then let that overflow into those issues of justice. Pursue the knowledge of God through Jesus, through the scriptures. You might be a person who's a complete sceptic, but you keep coming to church because you like the coffee, the people, and the tunes. Allow Jesus to enlighten you. Investigate him. Soak your mind in the scriptures. You might be a person of solid faith. Don't underestimate the brightness of Jesus the light to shine even more brightly into your life. The more you search him out, the more he will reveal to you. The light shines into the darkness of doubt. It also, the light shines into the darkness of despair. Look at verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognise him. The second way we can understand the use of the word darkness is the moral sense of the word. The light is shown into the moral darkness of the world, the evil, the corruption, the people, and exposed and transformed it. This darkness was the darkness into which the creation formed, but also the darkness of people's hearts. According to John, human beings love moral darkness because our deeds are essentially evil, he says in John 3.19. And when the light shines on people, on us, onto our moral darkness, we hate it and we run and hide. We don't like to be exposed. And this is why as we keep reading through the Gospel of John, we will see him being rejected and we will see people running and hiding and we'll see people moving from the darkness literally into the light. It actually uses you know, the imagery of he was running through the night and then he came to Jesus and then the light is on him. Um, you can read the story of Nicodemus. Now you might be thinking, no, I don't think the world is that dark. Um, on Thursday I went to Bruce Springsteen, of course, um, who, who didn't, I suppose like half of Melbourne went, and it was amazing. And just before 
we were, in the, we were up at the front about 15 minutes from Bruce. Yeah. And um, just before we walked on, my friend said, I wonder if we're going to get any Donald Trump tonight. You know, because Bruce is, loves to talk about American politics. And uh, he was famously at the centre of the inauguration in that he wasn't in the centre of the inauguration. He was asked, and he said no. And then the B Street band were asked, the cover band, and they said get stuffed as well. Um, so, yes, the first thing Bruce said is, we come as embarrassed Americans. That's the first thing he said. And then um, he started playing a song about... Um, this like old folk song about Don't Hang Up On Me, which is a reference to um, Malcolm Trumbull, as they said, you know, Turnbull, and um, his conversation and apparently hung up. Anyway, since the rise of Trump, there's been also, I think, a rise in fear in the world, especially amongst my friends, people talking about, I wonder where the world's going. Um, it doesn't feel like we're in good hands in terms of our closest ally. Um, is he going to just like start some crazy war with, with uh, you know, China or something? We are worried about the potential for evil and corruption. We are worried about the kinds of values that Trump promotes. Um, we saw the Women's March, one, I think the biggest march ever in American history. We are worried about the demonisation of minority groups. And we were worried about egotistic populist leaders who uh, want to start wars. It isn't that long ago that Western people were persuaded by a very, very optimistic view of the human race, which said that people are essentially good. And our whole system of democracy is based, isn't it, on this idea that human beings are essentially good, that, that um, even though the individual has needs and desires, that democracy is based on this idea that we will all just put our own needs aside a bit for the greater good, uh, for the majority. But now, lots of people are questioning democracy. Um, and they have been for a century or so. During World War II, there was a, and previously, there's a very famous American philosopher and theologian and political um, writer called Reinhold Niebuhr, um, who Time Magazine said was the second most important American theologian in history after Jonathan Edwards and who went on to influence many people like Barack Obama and um, Martin Luther King and Hillary Clinton as well, apparently. Um, but for Obama, it was his favourite philosopher. Anyway, the thing that, Christian, uh, that uh, Reinhold Niebuhr talked about was um, this idea of Christian realism. I think I've mentioned it before in a sermon a few last year, but this idea of Christian realism, which is the view that um, the kingdom of God cannot be fully realised on earth now because human beings are essentially corrupt. Uh, and that leads into a political theory. So he's not saying that God can't bring the kingdom of God. Uh, he's just saying that we can't. And that, and that leads to um, um, holding democracy at arm's length. He, he, he would question, he said, don't put all your hopes in democracy. It's not going to lead necessarily to, to the, um, the joys that you think it is. And he would be very much in opposition to someone like Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey or the sort of contemporary um, self-help writers who, who have an optimistic view of the human heart um, because he was writing in the time of Hitler and Stalin and the Holocaust. And so he famously said, people's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but people's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. It's a necessary 
evil in a kind of a way. And the famous prayer, which reflects his theology and his view of the human heart, and his right view of God as well, is this. You would have heard it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You might not be persuaded that there's a moral darkness in the world, but just open the newspaper and read it. You know, you'll see it. Also, look into your own heart. The Bible's view, when it talks about the world, it's talking about not just the planet, but often, especially in the Gospel of John, it's talking about the corruption of the world, that human beings, that the people that reject the light. It, sometimes it has a negative overtone. The creation is in rebellion against its maker. And this says a lot about God. Uh, the, perhaps the most famous verse in the Gospel of John is John 3.16, For God so loved the world uh, that, that he gave his only son so that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. We should admire God's love because, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad, and yet he loves the world. If Jesus is the saviour of the world, then that says a lot about how, how amazing Jesus is. It says nothing positive about the world, and it says that the world needs a saviour. So the extent to which you realise your own darkness in your own heart and how much you contribute to the world's um, corruption will be the extent to which you realise You need Jesus, the light, to shine on you. And once you realise your selfishness, your propensity to lie and cheat and think hateful thoughts, once you realise that's a problem, you might start to give Jesus, the light, a chance. I was reading um, Peter Adams' prayer letter the other day and he um, is a local minister who's a good friend of the Raggett family and he's retired now and he wrote about an experience he had with a woman who was dying in hospital, who suddenly realised her need for God before she died. And he said this, A friend of mine, who's not a Christian, asked me to visit a friend of hers, um, whose name was Julianne, who's also not a Christian, in hospital. As there was no chaplain available, she asked me, What is the truth about dying? And I replied, There is a God, and you are going to meet him. And from there to the gospel, so he explained who, Jesus and how he's the saviour of the world to this lady. He goes on. She was so obviously prepared by God for that moment and she half remembered the Bible verses I quoted to her from Sunday school many years ago and she became a Christian within an hour. Um, And uh, he's speaking at her funeral on Friday. See, when you're ready and realising that you need the light, that's when you can respond positively. And how do you receive the light? How do you do that? Some religions will tell you you, that you need something special in your heart, that you need to be enlightened to know God. But actually, you do need to be enlightened, but it's not going to come from you. It comes from Jesus. And what the Gospel of John seems to be saying is that he actually is shining on everyone all the time. He's shining on you now. It actually says it in in the verses, the true light that gives light to everyone. Well, it doesn't mean that everyone responds to Jesus positively. In fact, the Gospel of John says many people, most people reject him. But right now he's shining on you and he forces you into a decision. Yes or no, that's the decision. Or will you you respond in, in faith or will you be like other people in the Gospel of John who encounter Jesus and run away or run to him? The light shines in the darkness of despair. If you want to have hope in that despair, 
respond to Jesus. If you want hope in the despair in your heart, in transformation of your heart, respond to Jesus. And lastly, and I'll finish here, the light shines in the darkness of death. Verse 12. So it ends positively, this little section. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, but of a hu- or a husband's will, but born of God. So the Gospel of John is intentionally quoting Genesis, the, the first book of the Bible, which talks about the creation of the universe. And yes, when we, we have to think of the light shining in the darkness of the creation, um, the light shines in the darkness, we have to picture that image, but also we can think of Jesus shining in the light of new creation as well. The same light that created the universe can recreate you, produce a new you. It is natural to fear death. It is perfectly human to be afraid of what it is like. But the prologue, the first 18 verses, tells us something important about Jesus the light. And that is that if you have received Jesus the light and allowed him to transform your life, responded to him in faith, transform the darkness of your doubt so that now you have faith, and he has shined the darkness of your corrupt heart so that now your heart is softened and that you want to point it towards him and live for him and um, be obedient to him and turn away from the evil, um, then you have been born again. That's what this passage is saying. You have the right to be called a child of God. And you can be assured that when your life, when you die, your life is safe in God's hands. And later on, when we baptise Jude, we will see a picture of this new life. He will go down into the darkness of the water and come up into new life. And I pray for you that you can have that too. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you that you sent Jesus the light into the world to shine on us. And we pray that as he shines on us now that we will respond positively in faith, that we will believe that we will realise our need for transformation and accept him. Amen.